0: Do any of you enjoy gardening? I have a good friend at work named Pamela who loves to garden. She grows some of the most beautiful flowers and fruit trees. Her office is filled with a variety of plants, some near the window because they need a lot of light, some in darker corners because they only need indirect sunshine. She waters them regularly, tends and repots them as needed and has great results. I'm not like Pamela. When I first moved into our house in Athens, it was February, and the house was newly built on a piece of land that had been carved out of woods. I had one tree in the front yard, three on the side of the house, and a big tangle of trees and weeds in the backyard. The front yard was mostly dirt with a few weeds sprinkled in. And try as I might, I couldn't keep up with it. The weeds were a never-ending problem. They invaded the grass seed I tried to plant in the front yard, they took over the landscaping around the house, and they thwarted all of my attempts to grow vegetables in the two garden beds. Every time I tried to weed, it seemed like I pulled up several good plants along with the weeds. And within a week or two, the weeds would be back. I finally gave up and hired a friend who has a landscaping business to manage our yard. I just couldn't handle the weeds. And weeding still ranks up there as one of my least favorite jobs, especially in this heat. Today's scripture reading spoke to me the first time I read it because it also deals with weeds. The story is one of a group of parables told by Jesus in an effort to give his followers a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. Parables are funny things. As a child, I learned in Sunday school that parables were stories that used familiar elements, like wheat or yeast or sheep, to help people understand an important truth about the Christian faith. It turns out that explanation is only partially true. We like to think that parables illustrate points we already understand and agree with, but that's not actually their purpose. Parables are not necessarily meant to ensure that the listener or the reader understands what Jesus is trying to say, and they're definitely not intended to confirm what we already believe. One of the main purposes of a parable is to tease our minds into active thought. Many of the parables of Jesus use strange or vivid imagery. A shepherd who risks the lives of 99 sheep in the wilderness just to find one sheep who has strayed away. A woman who mixes yeast into three measures of flour. A woman who uses precious oil to light a lamp to find a single coin that's lost. When we look at these stories logically, they don't make sense. And that's the point. Parables tend to challenge our expectations, to make us sit up and take notice, to force us to participate actively in making sense of what Jesus has said. To better understand the parable we read this morning, it's important to understand the context where it appears. This section of Matthew's Gospel is known as the Parable Discourse and it includes seven different parables. There are two or three more in the section that we didn't read today. It's the third of Jesus's five major speeches to crowds of followers. Jesus told these parables all on one day, the same day that the Pharisees began developing a plot to have him killed, and immediately after the parable discourse, King Herod had John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus, beheaded. It was in this context where Jesus was surrounded by conflict and danger on multiple sides that he used parables to talk about the kingdom of God and God's judgment at the end of the age. The parable J.T. read for us this morning is full of agricultural imagery, which would have been quite familiar to the crowds listening to Jesus tell it. This parable is not as well known as the parable of the sower who planted seed in different kinds of soil and got different results. This parable, usually called the parable of the weeds, appears only in Matthew's gospel. It starts out as a simple story. A farmer planted wheat seeds in a field. During the night, an enemy of the farmer tiptoed in and planted weeds among the wheat. It wasn't until the plants sprouted that the farmer and the farm workers discovered the weeds. The workers went to the farmer and asked if they should pull out the weeds. Most of us would have expected the farmer to say yes, pull out the weeds before they choke out the wheat that we're intending to grow. And yet this farmer gave surprising instructions. Leave the weeds alone because if you pull them out now, you'll uproot the growing wheat as well, and you'll risk losing some of the good crop. When it's time for the harvest, the farmer will instruct the reapers to pull up the weeds, bind them into bundles, and burn them, and then harvest the wheat into the barn. For the crowds listening to Jesus preach, that was the end of the parable. He didn't try to explain it but left them to make sense of it themselves based on their own experiences. It was not until later when Jesus was alone with the disciples inside the house that he explained what this parable meant. The disciples were part of the inner circle around Jesus, his chosen family, and therefore got more information than the general public. And as Jesus explained the meaning, of the weeds took on a deeper significance than just a simple lesson about how to grow the best field of wheat. The farmer who planted the good seed was the Son of Man, a term that Jesus used 81 different times in the Gospels to refer to himself. Scholars have disagreed for centuries about what the term Son of Man means. Some believe the term refers to Jesus' humanity, others think it focuses on his divine nature. In any case, Jesus was labeling himself as the sower of the good seed. The good seed referred to the children of the kingdom. The seed that reproduced weed referred referred to the children of the evil one, the enemy who planted the weeds. Jesus explained that he himself had sown the word of the kingdom and that word was already bearing fruit in the community of his followers. But the evil one had also sent out minions to sow weeds by spreading lawlessness and false prophets and by causing others to stumble. One key message of this parable is that evil exists alongside good in the world. Followers of Jesus need to keep their eyes open and recognize the evil in the world. But we also need to resist trying to purge the world of all evil. It's God's responsibility to separate the wheat from the weeds, the genuine believers from the false ones. We are told that God will do this at the end of the present age, before the beginning of the new kingdom of God. As I said, parables are funny things. They don't always mean what we think the first time we hear them, and they don't always tell us what we want to hear. It's tempting to simplify this parable, to make it about who's good and who's evil, and to cast ourselves as the good ones. After all, we're part of a church. We worship God on Sundays, we give to support the work of the church, and we support outreach projects like the Red Cross Blood Drive that's happening tomorrow. But to be, sure, to be sure that we're the good seed and the people outside our church are the, are the weeds is to miss the point of this parable. So how does this parable apply to our lives today in Lawrenceville, Georgia, in 2023? Before we consider what we can take from this parable as a faith community, it's important to, remember, to, to recognize what this parable is not telling us. First of all, it's not a call to judge others. There are definitely times when we can see and recognize evil in the world. The obvious cases, such as people who injure the bodies or minds or souls of others, or who abuse children or partners or people they don't even know. But many forms of wrongdoing and evil are harder to recognize. This parable reminds us that it's not our job to find and remove all the weeds. God is the judge and we are called to leave the weeds to grow with the wheat until harvest time. This doesn't mean we're supposed to be passive to just allow anything to happen while we wait for God's ultimate judgment. Our faith still calls us to act in the face of injustice and violence to stand up for those who are marginalized, to feed the hungry, to care for the sick. At the same time, the parable of the weeds reminds us that we don't have the power to remove all evil from the world. And sometimes trying to get rid of the weeds does more harm than good. This parable is also not a call to isolate ourselves in our church to focus on our own needs and keep the rest of the world out for fear of being exposed to evil. Jesus himself explained to the disciples that the field in this parable is the whole world, not just the church. There's a scene in the movie, The Sound of Music, where Maria runs away to the abbey because she realizes she's in love with Captain Von Trapp. The wise Reverend Mother tells Maria, These walls are not meant to shut out problems. You have to face them. The same is true of our church and of all churches. Going out into the world to share the good news and care for others is a deep foundational part of being a Christian. And being inside a church does not ensure our safety. The weeds can mix with the good seed even inside churches. A 2023 study estimated that between 10 and 33% of people in the United States have experienced some form of religious trauma caused by exposure to indoctrination messages, coercion, humiliation, embarrassment, or abuse within a church setting. Many of those who have experienced religious trauma still consider themselves spiritual, but stay away from organized religion. The world around us is not always trustworthy. Other people can cause us deep pain as well as deep joy. And yet there are two pieces of hope in this parable that can sustain us as we deal with the pain and evil of the world. The first piece of hope is that the presence of evil in the world is not by God's design. This parable tells us it is the work of the evil one. When I first moved to Georgia, I was introduced to the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. Rabbi Kushner's own son was diagnosed at age three with a progressive disease that led to his death at age 14. The rabbi wrote the book to help people understand and cope with the fact that bad things happen in the world, even to people who don't deserve it. His main message is that God does not cause evil to happen, but God is a steady and reliable presence with us and support for us when we're going through even the most challenging times. It's an important message for all of us, whether we're going through challenges ourselves right now or supporting others who are. God doesn't cause bad things to happen, but God is there to help us and be with us when we experience them. At the same time, it's important to to be mindful of the language we use when we're supporting people experiencing trauma. Telling someone dealing with the worst day of their life that God has a plan may be intended to be comforting, but it can also be heard as callous and uncaring and can cause further suffering. As this parable reminds us, the evil in our world is not part of God's plan. And there's a second piece of hope in this parable, the promise that the evil in our world is only temporary. Jesus himself promised that when God's judgment comes at the end of the age, the sources of evil will be thrown into the furnace, like the weeds are bundled up and burned, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God, just as the wheat is harvested into the barn. Evil will be eliminated, and good will prevail in the kingdom of God. We live in an imperfect world where good and evil coexist. Yet this parable reminds us that we should go on doing all the things Jesus taught, both inside the walls of this church and in our community. When children are hungry, we should help the Lawrenceville Co-op collect and distribute food so they can eat. When people are sick, we should host medical screenings and vaccine clinics and blood drives to help them. When they're lonely, we should follow the example of the CWF and send them cards to let them know we care. When they don't have what they need for school, we should collect school supplies to support them. When they need connection with their community, we should host movie nights and trunk or treat and a live nativity and other events where people can gather together. I'm not sure these last two examples were actually in the New Testament, but they're logical extensions of ways to live out our call to care for others. In the weeks and months to come, Teresa and I are excited to work with all of you to continue discerning God's call and plan for First Christian Church of Lawrenceville and to follow God's guidance as we reach out to those around us. So many in our community need to see and hear and experience God's love in the many ways we can offer it. Together, with the help of God, we can do so much to enrich the lives of so many. Will you join us?